Welcome. This is Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association. And this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast, Halloween edition. Thorndike Press is changing the way people think about large print books. With a larger font size, more white space between lines, and a higher contrast ink, large print books remove common barriers for children and teens who struggle with reading. Thorndike Press large print books are proven to make reading accessible and build confidence in young learners. And when kids are confident, there's no limit to what they can do. Build your large print collection today. Go to gale.com books. That's G-A-L-E dot com slash books for more information. In 1985, in a heavily wooded area of Bear Brook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire, two bodies were found in a 55-gallon steel drum. They had been wrapped in plastic and were almost completely skeletonized. Autopsies determined they were the bodies of a woman and a child, and they had died of blunt force trauma to the head. Their identities? A mystery. Fifteen years later, 100 yards from where those bodies were found, another steel drum was found. Inside, two more decomposed bodies. Two children. Two more deaths caused by blunt force trauma. Again, their identities unknown. After years of detective and forensic work, genetic genealogy, and DNA testing, a discovery was finally made in 2017. These bodies were the victims of serial killer Terence Rasmussen, who died in a California prison in 2010 while serving time for another murder. It was also determined that one of the children found in the second barrel was his child. Dubbed the Chameleon Killer for the many aliases he used during his decades-long crime spree, Rasmussen was posthumously found to be responsible for the deaths of more than six people. But the four bodies in the drums, who they really were, what lives they led before suffering at his hands, was a mystery. Until recently. In 2017, we knew the identity of the Allenstown killer, but his victims' identities remain a mystery. We're here to report that for three of the four Allenstown victims, that's now changed. Here's what we've learned. On June 6, 2019, New Hampshire Associate Attorney General Jeffrey Strelzen announced that three of the four bodies found in Bear Brook State Park had been identified. They were Marlise Elizabeth Honeychurch, age 24, and her daughters, six-year-old Mary Elizabeth Vaughn and one-year-old Sarah Lynn McWaters. Honeychurch had been a former girlfriend of Rasmussen's. The route to uncovering the identities was a years-long maze involving law enforcement, forensic science, and other experts. But it ended thanks to an amateur sleuth, a research librarian named Rebecca Heath, whose persistence and obsession with uncovering the truth changed lives. Today, on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, Rebecca shares her story and how being a librarian informed her detective work. After that, Stick around for two more short library mysteries that you can help solve. But first, here's my conversation with Rebecca about the Bear Brook murders. When did you first learn about the Bear Brook murder case, and what drew you to this one in particular? 
I believe I came across the Bear Brook murders approximately 10 years ago, and it was researching at work for a completely different, completely different uh, case. Not, not, not a completely different area. I work in insurance. Um, and I came across this article that was like in the newspaper archives. And it was, it stood out to me because um, it was, first of all, it was no, November 10th of 85 that the first barrel was found. And my birthday was November 13th of 85. And so that was kind of like, oh, that's, that's weird. It stuck out. And I assumed, oh, well, these, these, these Jane Doe's must have been identified by now. It's, this is an old article. And uh, I found out that, no, that they were still unidentified. And it was kind of mind-boggling to me how no one had come forward about essentially an entire family being found in barrels. Yeah. Oh, so, you, so this is this the Bear Brook is not the first case that you've worked on? Oh yeah, yes. The yes, I I've never cracked a cold case before. This is definitely the first. Oh, but you're. It sounds like you're you're a fan of of, of true crime and, and mysteries, though. Oh yes, give me uh, Agatha Christie. Um, give me any British murder mystery. Um, the unsuspecting sleuth. I, I'm all about. I'm all about that. Uh, but I, I, I guess I didn't realize that it would play into my my actual life. Yeah. Um, now you, you you mentioned it briefly, but can you, let's talk a bit about your research process. What? How did you go about um, learning more about about these victims and, and and ultimately discovering their true identities? So it's it's a little bit complicated. So with the with the Jane Doe's with the Jane Doe victims. Um, for me, I really kind of want to give them a voice. They don't have a voice. I mean, look, anyone out there telling their story. Um, this one specifically, my approach was I was constantly seeing people put up, well, why isn't anyone looking for them? Why doesn't anybody want to know where they are? And my thought was, no, who is looking for them and how do how do I find them? So. My process started with going on any publicly available message board, and there are there really are tons of them um, on genealogy websites. You can even go on like uh, public records sites. There's there's so many places that people can post, and they're just posting like, "Oh, I'm looking for a, a, a missing." loved ones, someone that they assume that they have misconnections with over the past few years. And I would go through these different message boards and started compiling a list of any potential, I, I say in air quotes, victims um, that, that matched, that could possibly match these identities. So I went by year, location, a couple of different key terms that I would search and I would just keep going through this list that I compiled and one by one rule out that these individuals had that they did not have a proof of life identity. 
And did you um, – I imagine dealing with, with message boards like that, you're, you're dealing with, with content that's ultimately, in some cases, probably very old. Was that, was that a challenge? Were you dealing with a lot of out-of-date information? I, I imagine it was oh, yes. through so much. Yes, a lot of times you – a lot of times people give email addresses to contact them. So if you wanted to check and say, hey, I'm just wondering, are you still looking for so-and-so? Mind you, you're looking <laughs> you're looking at some of these websites that the, the email addresses do not exist anymore. So even after you find somebody, you, you necessarily, you're not necessarily done. You can't just send an email because so many times I would get bounced back. That was like, no, that's not an email address anymore. So you kind of have to dig and find them on Facebook too and approach and ask, are you this person that was looking for so and so? Um so yeah, it's a bit of it's a bit of digging because it, it I mean a lot of these websites have been around for years and years. Yeah. And how long did you from from the moment you started until I guess this past June, how long it was like you know a ten year process? Oh no, no, no. So when I first heard about it I, I I never proactively started researching it until oh. about November of 2016. I think that, yeah, 2016, that was when they had started giving the identity of the serial killer and they knew he was in New Hampshire. And that was what really triggered me to be like, there's, there's got, people must know. Now that they know who the guy is, they, we've got to have the answers. So, November 2016, that's when I really started proactively pursuing any type of lead that I thought was appropriate. And then it is almost a year ago, it was actually October of 2018, that this all kind of unraveled. Oh, wow. Now, during that process, did you ever second-guess yourself or get discouraged um, did you, how many, did you run across any, like, any dead ends or false leads? Uh, I, you, you're constantly, you're constantly, I guess it would be a dead lead, um, coming up with, oh, okay, this person is alive. It's not necessarily like a bad alternative. It's a very good, you're yeah. like, oh, good, I'm glad, I'm glad that you, you found your loved one. Um, it's hard to, be discouraged when you don't have an end goal of solving the case where you think you're just playing a very small role as kind of like a hobby. So being discouraged probably didn't necessarily happen. It, if anything, it was just like, just keep digging until you find something. Now the, um, the Bear Brook podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio, um, that definitely had a, a, a was a major player in your research too, and in, 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 in setting you on the way. Can you tell mm-hmm. our listeners a bit about that? So it was it was listening to the podcast that really triggered triggered one of these specific listings that I had come across before, and about a year earlier, I had kind of thrown on Facebook on one of these groups that followed the case saying, hey, does anyone think that 
this woman that's looking for, you know, this this person, does this thing, this could fit? Nobody really got back to me. Nobody really had any feedback to offer, and I kind of just let it go. But it was listening to that podcast, um, episode three went into the isotopes of where the victims were located and kind of gave me a much deeper picture of, okay, this is where they are. They're in between these two places. And then it just really lined up because of how they could possibly be in New England and California that this, this, this woman had been in these locations and the ages fit. And that's what made me say, you know, you got to go back and you got to contact that woman. You've got, you've got to find her. And what, um, can you tell us a bit about that when you, when you put those pieces of the puzzle together and you finally realize that you'd uncovered the identities of this family, what's, what was, what happened in that moment? And, and what did that feel like for you? So when I finally reached out to the woman and asked her, um, hey, were you looking for when she she gave information kind of freely about this woman that had gone missing and mentioned the serial killer's last name. And it's a it's a fairly uncommon last name, Mm -hmm. Rasmussen. And when she threw that out there, I. It was. It almost seemed like a really. I, I thought at first a cruel joke. I thought somebody was playing a cruel joke because I, I. So many people knew that I was just obsessed with this case, and I would always try to attribute something to it. And it, it was such disbelief that oh my goodness, this is something huge. That it's it's really really hard for, at least for me, it's so hard to comprehend. Oh my God! I think I can cover something. I think this is this is like this, this is going to be huge. I think this is huge. Um, it's 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 still so unbelievable. I can imagine. Um, now I think since um, just to backtrack for a second, talking a bit more about the research. Um, mm-hmm. You're as you mentioned, you're you're a librarian, a corporate librarian. You work in, in, in insurance. How did? Mm-hmm. Being a librarian, how did that impact your research? And do you think that gave you maybe a leg up on maybe some other people who might be looking into this cold case or other cold cases? What, what is being a librarian? How did that help you? I definitely think that my librarian skills assisted in the way that I approached and kind of conducted my research. Um, just being aware of the numerous resources and databases that I, I could use, um, even as far as different key terms, knowing how to search, knowing that it's not just one word that you use. It's, it's going com- like different avenues and not stopping until you kind of get an answer that maybe somebody wouldn't find immediately um that i think that played a huge role and it also kind of drove me because i am someone that wants an answer <laughs> i want i want to find an answer i want to be able to know that my my research is is somewhat successful 
Now, you weren't the only person in the, working on this case independently. There was uh, Barbara, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Barbara Ray Venter, the genetic genealogist, was also working on this at the same time. It's kind of fascinating mm -hmm. how your two paths were going on together parallel without mm -hmm. knowing each other. Um, when did you learn about her, and um, how did that play out? Uh, I actually did not. I didn't learn about. I didn't learn about her until um, after after the the identities were have until they had officially said, "Hey, these they are identified, and this is this is how it happened." I I didn't know. I didn't know any of that was going on. I mean, it, it's 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 crazy coincidental of how you know two people completely different of the country are just working on the same the same case. It's crazy. Yeah, and it must have been, I guess, validating too, because here's someone who's confirmed via the DNA that you're right. Yeah, I mean that that is um it's 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 still it's so it's so it's even now like speaking about it, it's been it's been, you know, an entire year at least since the family submitted the DNA. They didn't officially make an announcement until June of this year, but it still seems so crazy that how, how did this how how like well oh my goodness like this it's it, it's just so surreal. Um, now there is a fourth victim. Um, are you mm. doing any work to help identify the um, the middle child? Are you still are you still involved with the Bear Brook case at all? Absolutely, I I've never stopped looking for that. That middle child, I, w I would say, it, I mean, after this had happened, and I was kind of fairly certain that just because speaking with the family and, no and knowing their stories and seeing the pictures, I was fairly certain that these were the victims. And then knowing that there was still one more girl that, that doesn't have her identity, um, I feel she deserves her identity just as much. Um, I feel like right now she's labeled the the daughter of a serial killer, and I I I I feel like no no there's like there's still people out there there's still like there's the answers um I I I look every day I any possible any possible lead I I look into um and I I think law enforcement released photos um and they think that possibly she could be in these photos with the, the little girls the victims at her birthday party um i mean i it's like hoping that the one person will see these photos and recognize the surrounding the place that maybe maybe something will happen that i i just absolutely hope that she gets identified very soon You've heard that curiosity killed the cat, 
But is that the real story? When he was little, Cat liked to read what his friends were reading, and he was very curious about learning. But when he moved from beginner-level books to young adult titles, which had smaller font and more words on a page, he fell behind. Cat used to love reading, but when he couldn't keep up, he became unmotivated in school and stopped being curious. Keep kids and cats curious. Visit gale.com books to browse hundreds of large print titles. Do you have what it takes to solve a mystery? Try your skills here with us as Dewey Decimal Correspondents Tara Denkowski and Sarah Ostman talk with librarians who have unsolved mysteries of very different varieties at their own libraries. First, Tara speaks with Christy Chatterton, who handles public relations at the Port County Public Library in the Port, Indiana, about their infamous Taco Bookmark case. Then, Kara Potter, director of Derry Public Library in Derry, New Hampshire, relays to Sarah the case of their missing time capsule. After, if you have any clues or answers to these mysteries, head to Dewey Decimal on Twitter and let us know. Enjoy. The legend as we know it, um, in 2011, we received a book in our book drop um, and it went unnoticed for, you know, the, a portion of the day. And then as they were doing their check-in process, um, it was discovered upon opening that there was a completely flattened <laughs> um, taco in there. Lots of lovely cheese and lettuce and shell um, included. Do you know what kind of taco it was? Well, we believe it was a plain taco from Taco Bell. <laughs> it, it, it appeared to be. It appeared to have the, the look of a Taco Bell taco. That's kind of what I thought looking at the photo of it. I have a lot of yes. Taco Bell experience. So <laughs> what was the book? Um, the book was actually a book that originated in, uh, it was originally published in 1888, um, it, <laughs> which, you know, it was kind of funny that it was um, such an old book, um, but it was uh, Nothing, Sights and Sounds, I believe was the name of the book, from um, an original publishing date of 1888. So. Um, it was an oldie, but a goodie, and clearly not forgotten. Yeah. So this this all happened eight years ago, uh, but it really went viral last month. And I just wanted to know, in these eight years, were there any theories or suspects or any idea how or why the taco ended up in the book? We've never really been able to solve this um, this mystery, if you would. Um, again, it has gone down as legend, especially in our training processes, should said new employee ever find a taco in a book <laughs> um, to make the noted, um, you know, make notes and uh, take lots of pictures. But no, we've never seen another one. Um, it was a isolated incident. Um, it was one that still, again, remains the, a wonderful mystery. 
Um, and as we go into our centennial year, um, it, it's so funny that it's the one that we're being, um, you know, hailed for right now. <laughs> yeah. How, how does the library or LaPorte residents feel about being a, a taco bookmark kind of town? Well, we have had lots of jokes. Um, our local taco shop, um, they uh, did deliver us some tacos when it went viral a few weeks ago. Um, and this was, again, all based on a viral challenge, if you would, on Twitter, where one of our previous employees um, posted on the Oreo um, Twitter feed because they were saying that Oreos and milk make a great uh, bookmark and she came back with but a taco beats that so um, yeah that's how it, how it started you never know what you find as you guys all can imagine in library books when they're returned a few years ago um, the town started planning for its 300th anniversary and um, the last time they had a celebration like this was 50 years ago at the 250th. And um, at, at that celebration, there is was mem you know community memory that there had been a time capsule that was buried um, buried at the library, but nobody seemed to remember if it was buried in the lawn outside the library or um, if it was in the library wherever. Um, so I I. I've been here five years, and when I started working here, there was a safe in our local history room. It, on the front, it has 300th anniversary painted on it, and then there's a plaque on the wall. It says, do not open until 300th anniversary, and the plaque also indicates it's the people who arranged the 250th anniversary that created this. The assumption was that that was the time capsule, even though it didn't say time capsule anywhere on it. And um, I hadn't been contacted by the, you know, the the 300th anniversary people that they want were interested in opening it, so I was thinking I would open it for the library and have a library program last summer. So I opened it last April, um, and there's nothing in it, nothing in the safe. I didn't. We closed it. I didn't really think anything of it. Um, I figured the time capsule was actually someplace else. I was on vacation in Upper Michigan, and I got a text from my staff member that the, a gentleman from the 300th committee was here to pick up the safe to take to a 300th anniversary event and open it. We hadn't been given any heads up about this at all, so they were informed that there's nothing in it. Um, there was a little bit of um, back and forth between the 300th committee, a couple of 300th committee people and myself about what happened to what was in it. and. Um, Two of the gentlemen on the 300th committee talked to a local newspaper, and they said in the local to the no, local newspaper that um, the time capsule had been lost and it had been in the library's um, local history room. My staff took we took issue with a few pieces of that. So instead of getting angry about it, though, we thought we would have fun with it. I sent my um, reference staff onto a um, search, and they just grabbed the bit and ran with it, and they did some research. And um, while they had initially started that, um, WMUR showed up um, at the library when I was when I was coming to work, and to do they wanted to do a news story about this. That piece got picked up, and um, w you know we started getting calls from CNN, New York Times, <laughs> um, Reader's Digest, 
my family in London saw it on the news there. Um, one of our reference librarians who's Russian was in St. Petersburg visiting her family and she saw it there. Um, it was kind of crazy, and that just was more gave my staff more energy to find out what really happened. So I was joking during the time that they, should, they should, my reference staff should set up their own detective agency after this was over. So since then, we found letters from um, the chairman of the 300th or 250th anniversary, saying that the time capsule was buried in the basement of town hall or put in the basement of town hall. Um, we also had um, sort of, we've had more than one person call and say that the safe was a practical joke um, by, from, done by the 250th committee on the 300th committee because it just says open it at the 300th and they then they never put anything in it. Um, we just don't know. There's no, nobody kept any sort of written record, um, which is unfortunate. I tend to think it, it was a practical joke, um, and I'm not sure that there ever was a, a time capsule, um, but I could be wrong. You never know. The current, the 300th anniversary celebration, people have um, bought a new safe, and they're following. I recommended that they store it not at the library, but at the local history museum, which they are going to do. And uh, I've been joking with the. Um, the museum director, who's a friend of mine, that he needs to put it on his inventory and we need to catalog it for the library and put it in the library catalog so somebody will know where it is in 50 years from now. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Many thanks to Rebecca, Christy, and Kara for sharing their stories with us. Join us next month as we explore library advocacy efforts on the local level. You do not want to miss this one. If you'd like to share your library mystery, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or reach out to me directly at deweydecibel at ala.org. Don't be afraid to reach out. We won't bite. Hard. As always, I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Witches, witches, skeletons and bats, scary ghosts and big black cats. Woo, woo, what a fright. It's scary, scary on Halloween night. Halloween is a time to have fun with the things that scare us. What if one of the things that scares you is reading? Show kids that reading doesn't have to be scary. Offer large print books alongside your library's traditional format versions and bring back a love for reading. You can learn more and shop online at gale.com books or speak to a Thorndike Press sales consultant. Again, that's g-a-l-e dot com slash books. Tell them Dewey Decibel sent you.